to Mystical Millennial, a podcast about the musings of a self-proclaimed glamour witch and her friends. Grab a drink and join me, V, for a magical chat. It's my first episode! At long last, I've been able to sit down, record, edit all that shit. Wow. Thank you all so much for listening. So many of you have already shown support and asked me about this podcast. It's really exciting. I'm I'm really happy to be recording the first episode. And I'm not going to apologize for publishing a lot later than I expected. And I'm not going to get into why because this is supposed to be a fun podcast. For my first episode, I wanted to talk about firsts. First tarot cards, first witchy experiences, whatever sort of superhero origin story I can concoct for y'all and then tell you what really happened. There were a lot of guesses about what content I would explore for this episode, but the biggest hint is something I'm really excited to introduce, and we'll have this every episode. So without further ado, allow me to introduce Potions Master and my own personal Knight of Cups, my husband Patrick. Welcome to the show, darling. Hey, V. Nice to be here. <laughs> As if... We haven't been constantly together for, like, five months. Yeah, I'm going to see you up when this is over. Yeah. We still live together, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so tell the people why you're here. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, when quarantine started, I was really interested in learning how to make cocktails. I've always really liked cooking. been cooking for a while. My dad instilled that in me. And I think usually whenever we would have liquors around the house, we might feel a little fancier one night and, you know... We'd walk over to the liquor cabinet together and start pouring things together, and a lot of times it did not turn out to taste very good. <laughs> so I, I decided, quarantine, let's have some fun. Let's learn how to make cocktails for real. So I've been reading up a lot, learned how to make a lot of different kind of cocktails, and I've even learned a little bit about the history of some really, really common cocktails that we all drink every day. Yeah, so you're going to give us a little cocktail recipe, history lesson, Something to tie it into the week's theme or every other bi-week. That's what I'm hoping to do. Yeah. So what did you have for an origin story cocktail? Well, I feel like, you know, when we, if we're going to talk about origins of cocktails or maybe maybe the classic cocktails, I think the thing that comes to everybody's mind is the martini. Sure. I mean, I think everybody's probably had one at some point in their lives and everybody has different opinions on them. Um, but the thing about martinis is that they're extremely versatile, very easy to make, small changes to a martini that can have a big impact on the overall flavor. But when we talk about a traditional a traditional drink, the traditional martini is always something people can come back to. So martinis got a little bit of an interesting history, actually. Uh, a lot of people might be used to having a martini served with vodka, but actually the martini actually really started with gin. Oh. Um, gin was actually... Gin's so much better than vodka, in my it, opinion. It's been amazing to have it around the house. Yeah, because it's mean, so... It's got all those fun herbs and spices in it. It right. just kicks the drink up a lot. It does. It, it, it's like vodka 2.0. Yeah. I mean, it, just, it just brings a little bit more of that flavor to the table. And there's even different kinds of gin that uh, can have slightly different variances in their flavors. So, uh, yeah, the original, the original martinis were served with gin, and the whole point was actually to uh, accentuate the flavor of the gin. You know, kind of, I think maybe the modern equivalent of, of what the martini used to be would be like the old-fashioned. You know, mm-hmm. the idea was you serve this thing 
more so straight up with liquor, but you're just kind of accentuating that liquor with a few other components. It was actually originally served as a cocktail called a gin in French, which was mm. super popular. And basically it was equal parts gin with equal parts sweet, or I'm sorry, dry vermouth, which at the time was called Noyer Prat. And I really hope I'm pronouncing it right. Oh my God. It's a French, it's a French vermouth. Noy Prat? Um, Noy Prat. It's a N-O-I-L-L-Y-P-R-A-T. So just really lost hope... most of our audience I... by talking like bougie as fuck people. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not drinking it. I'm just telling you what they drink. It's the history. <laughs> right. So it used to be, and, and you know, the thing was is that for those of you that may not have ever tasted vermouth straight before, vermouth is a Who little bit. Who would drink vermouth straight? I mean, you can. I, I I don't know why, but when I, when I think of somebody drinking vermouth on the rocks, I think of like, an 80-year-old woman? Oh. Am I? I don't know. I don't know. I don't really feel like that's... It's not like a frat guy drink, I think. No. <laughs> I mean, you put vermouth in a martini. Right. It's that's, kind what, of the, that's what it's for. That's the, classic, that's the classic way to serve it. Right. So there's actually, a, there's actually a kind of a little bit of a debate as to what exactly gave birth to the martini. I think everybody, everybody agrees that the gin in French was kind of the father of the martini. Um, so there's a few different ideas of where the martini came from. Uh, just to kind of read off a few, uh, some believe that the dry martini was invented uh, by the by the English in the late 1800s. It was named after a martini Henry rifle, which was used in the in the Royal British Army. Uh, there's another origin story that the martini comes from a town named Martinez, where it was mixed by a bartender named Richelieu. Or uh, possibly that Professor Jerry Thomas of San Francisco's Occidental Hotel created for a miner who was on his way to the town of Martinez. And then I think one of the biggest origin stories for it is that it came from New York, of course. Um, a place called the Knickerbocker in 1910. Um, and by the way, I am using as a reference uh, the Ultimate Bar Book Comprehension Guide by Mitty Helmick, which is a fantastic little bar book. So basically we've got a lot of different ideas here. And I think the, I think wherever it came from, the idea is that the martini really started to gain traction in the late 1800s or early 1900s. Mm. That's kind of where the gin and French started to change. And what the idea was, was use a little bit less vermouth, a little bit more gin. You got something that's a little bit more boozy, accentuates the flavor of the gin. People seem to like it. Mm. So it became a big hit. Um, now over time, what ended up happening was kind of two things. First of all, I think Russia kind of started to become a bigger player in uh, global trade. So, um, you know, I think back in the day, maybe in the 1700s, I don't really know how much Russia was trading with the British, but I think as colonialism and the Industrial Revolution allowed global trade, people became more and more exposed to this thing called vodka. Mm. And vodka is pretty, pretty similar to gin, like we just talked about, except it's a little bit more pure. And when vodka's chilled, it has less of a, less of a flavor. So that was kind of appealing to some people. Some people just want to get drunk, but they don't really necessarily want to taste all of this craziness. Or take a shot, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think when it's something to sip on while yeah. you're having conversation or making a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, really, you know, chilled vodka, if it's good quality vodka, it really can taste like water. Yeah. I mean, it can be, it could be like, whoa. Yeah. And uh, I think that a lot of a lot of what lent to this idea of uh, vodka being used in martinis was also it also came from James Bond. Um, I think James James Bond had a pretty big influence on the cocktail scenes. And I think the idea I guess the idea of James Bond ordering uh, vodka was 
it, it kind of signified his connection with like the Russian stuff that was happening. You know, James Bond was this, he was this figure of the Cold War. Shaken, right? not stirred. Right, right. His whole persona was deep undercover. So maybe if somebody like him is ordering a, a vodka martini, it's kind of like throwing people off, making him less suspicious, but also showing him as an international man. Now, actually, what we know about the martini is that the way James Bond ordered it, shake and not stirred, uh, quite a faux pas, actually. Well, yeah, because when you shake a drink, that's to meld flavors together, right? Right. And Or, like, get some sort of foam going, but, like, this well, is also literally... Well, chill it. Yeah. Chill it, yeah. But this is just vodka with vermouth. Right. Why the hell would you need to shake it? I, I think the thing was was that if you're if you're doing that to gin, it can actually ruin the gin. Oh. Um, vodka doesn't really have overall flavor profiles that can be muted, and there's this idea that if you were to shake gin uh, with something like a like a little bit of vermouth and some ice, you can actually bruise it. Uh, what? Is, right. It's a, I don't it's know. A it's a liquid. Weird, I don't know how you bruise a liquid, but. <laughs> That's what? what they say, you can bruise the gin because it actually, it can cover up some of those subtle flavors that it's supposed to come through. So what people actually used to do is they would stir martinis. You deliberately would stir it because that allows it to chill, but you're not going to ruin the underlying flavor profile within the gin. So this whole idea that, you know, James Bond was ordering something shaken, not stirred, I think it was supposed to be a little, oh, a little scandalous. <laughs> How, how could he do that? But he's like, she's like, I'm James Bond. I don't care. Yeah. So, but it, that wasn't very common at the time. And, and really, if you're gonna make a if you're gonna make a modern martini, you should stir it. I do not recommend um, shaking it unless you are making it with vodka. Um, mm. Stirring it is the way to go. And uh, it's one of those things where you can serve your martini however you want. But the whole point of drinking a gin martini is like we talked about. You want to taste that gin. It's gonna really take it away. So that's kind of it's kind of a little bit of the history of it. I, I think nowadays, I think that the idea of it having gin or vodka is such a blurry line nowadays that I don't think it, any. I don't think there's a cultural attachment to one way or the other. Mm. Like I feel like if I were to go into a bar and I asked for a martini, the bartender would ask me if vodka I wanted gin, gin. Or vodka. Right. It's not. There's there isn't really an assumption one way or another. Right. Uh, but gin is definitely the pure way to do it. Hmm. So I mean, just you know, just to kind of give you guys a simple, a simple recipe for a martini. Uh, I'll give you like one or two. So obviously the classic martini. What you're going to want to do is two ounces of gin, and then you're going to do a half ounce of dry vermouth. Now, the you have the eternal debate on the garnish, right? You have the idea oh, yeah. of something like blue cheese stuffed peel. olives are my favorite, but I oh, feel yeah. like that would be weird in a gin martini. Yeah, I think I think you'd leave the blue cheese out. Yeah, I think the olive is fine, uh, but I think that the blue cheese, I think the blue cheese accentuates vodka better. I agree. You um, want something salty, like they serve yeah. shots of vodka sometimes with like a plate of oysters, which is mm -hmm. one of my favorite things. Oh, that's good stuff. Yeah, and then you just shoot the vodka back, and it doesn't taste like anything. Mm -hmm. I I would be afraid to put any sort of any sort of cheese into a gin martini because I yeah. think it's just going to overpower the gin real quick. Yeah, I don't think that um, would melt very well. No. But that's kind of the classic way to do it. And the idea here is, you know, chill a, chill a coupe glass or some sort of up glass that you have. You're going to put those ingredients into a, obviously not the garnish, put the gin and the, and the vermouth into uh, some sort of a, 
container where you can put in a little bit of ice, stir it around, strain it into the glass. Boom, there you go. Classic, simple, easy. It was kind of a, a lot of people have probably heard of a dry martini. Now, this always kind of threw me for a loop because you're serving, you're serving something that has dry gin and dry vermouth. So when you ask for a martini dry, are you getting more of the vermouth or are you getting more of the gin? Mm. Kind of a weird little thing. I think thing. the drier it is, the less vermouth is in it. That's right. Yeah, like I've exactly. heard some people order a whisper of vermouth. I a, the, a friend told me this dumb joke. They used to make this martini for their grandma. I'd be like, just a whisper of vermouth. You pour gin in the glass and then you go, vermouth. <laughs> it's so silly. <laughs> But that would be a super dry martini, I guess. I could be kind of nice if, like, maybe you just take a shot of vermouth, and then you just have that vermouth flavor in your mouth. Or, like, just swirl just vermouth in the on. glass and go up on it. <laughs> That's yeah, the covid teeny. <laughs> actually, swirling vermouth in the glass is, uh, is actually quite common. Um, oh, yeah. There, there are people that will do that as well if you just want a, a light touch. But when we when we do talk about, yeah, you're exactly right, V. When you're ordering a dry, a dry martini, you are getting less vermouth, but the amount of gin is going to essentially stay the same, giving it a high proportionality to the gin. Um, and the reason why I think is is um, that even though this vermouth is called dry, dry vermouth, it has a sweeter flavor to it. So when we talk about dryness in uh, the drinking world, we want to take away sweetness. Yeah. So that's why it lends itself to that, that happening with mm. less vermouth in it. But basically, you know, talk about when we talk, we just talked about regular martini, which is two parts gin to a half part dry vermouth. If you're going to make a dry martini, you're doing two parts gin to a quarter part vermouth. Yeah. Um, I'll just give you one more quick recipe. Um, there is something called a perfect gin. Uh, I'm not really sure why they call it perfect, but it is actually two ounces of gin with a half part of dry and a half part of sweet. Oh. So it's actually a little bit of red and white vermouth mixed with gin. Oh. Um, I, That's I, the perfect martini. And they call it the perfect martini because I guess you're you're combining uh, the two kinds of vermouth, you know, the red and the white, dry and the sweet, and then you're getting this great combination of flavors from it. I've had it before. It's not my favorite drink. It wasn't my least favorite drink. It was fine. I mean, it was fine. I mean, I'm tasting this drink, and I want it to be over ice. That's just my personal preference so that it stays cold. Mm -hmm. I don't like it when a drink gets warm. I know I've heard that like you want to serve gin a little on the warmer side, so that way the herb, the, the herbaceousness that. Wow, yeah. that's a very bougie for herbaceousness. <laughs> no, I think you're no, you're exactly right. Yeah, you gotta. You, and I think the martini kind of asks for you to drink it quick. I, yeah. I think that's the thing about a martini is uh, that it's not. You want to knock them back. Right. It's it's not a sip. I think I think typically if you're serving a drink up, you're not drinking a, a sip and drink. You're drinking something that that has a it's got a time limit on uh, it before it starts going a little yeah a little hmm. warm kind of nasty. Thanks for the martini. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So you're gonna come on every episode and you'll have a different themed cocktail. That's right. We'll talk a little bit about the history, a little bit about how Good you guys can make it. And we'll do a taste test. And we'll do a taste test. Yep. Yep. Thank awesome. you for having me. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Awesome. Well, I'm honestly not a huge fan of the classic martini, but I'm not going to complain about a cocktail handcrafted and brought to me by my husband. 
I feel like the fucking empress. Except definitely not pregnant. That poor babe. The emperor and a baby and probably other kids and having to rule and can't have a drink. <laughs> so, I'm asked so very often about my tarot and witchy origins that I should have my own Marvel Studio movie. Can we get Chris Evans to play Captain America to my mystical millennial? But I don't ever mind answering the question. I love to tell my origin story, but let me see if I can tell it in a comic book style. Imagine little stick-up-her-ass V walking out of church, not knowing it was the last time. She hugs her parents and younger brother in a tearful goodbye and drives to Tampa, Lime green Volkswagen Beetle, packed to the gills with clothes, books, a disgusting green plastic cabinet, and whatever the hell else you need for college. But at a rest stop, she meets a beautiful woman with a long braid and a knitted satchel full of decks of cards. What are those? She asks the woman, who explains their tarot cards. V is very curious, but can't really move, because she's stiff from the aforementioned rigid spine. The woman understands and gently guides V into the forest. In a clearing, the woman dumps all the tarot decks on the ground and sits, shuffling them into different piles. She selects the deck she's looking for, a nightmarish pack of artwork full of pointed faces and hypnotic swirling eyes. The woman hands V the cards, and the wind picks up, and storm clouds gather. The woman tells V to ignore the rapidly changing weather. It is Florida, after all. And pick a card. As V pulls a card and flips it over, a bolt of lightning strikes her and sends her flying. When the smoke clears, V is in the middle of a crater, cards scattered around her and her awful stick reduced to fire kindling. The woman helps her up and the cards begin levitating around her. And that's how she became a mystical millennial hyperintuitive tarot reader. See? My degree in creative writing paid off. I hope you enjoyed that, because in reality, that story took almost eight years from beginning to end, and of course, I can't make cards levitate. I don't know if I would if I could, to be honest, because I don't really want to freak people out. I'm trying to make tarot more accessible. And floating cards just, I I don't know, I would be freaked out. <laughs> so let's break this down in my origin story. I was really a kind of bigoted church-going teenager, and the lime green Volkswagen Beetle was real. R.I.P. Frankie. I miss that car. I did move to Tampa for school. Go Bulls. But it wasn't until I started my degree in creative writing that I began to question what I thought about other people. If you want to hear more about my journey to accept others, you can check out my other podcast, the Fabulous Fools Tarot Book Club podcast. Um, And the episode is Red, White, and Royal Blue. It's an excellent read, by the way. Um, So, but anyway, back to my origin story. Enter onto the scene my future husband, Patrick, the Knight of Amazing Potions. And it was his mother, Joanne, who introduced me to tarot. She's the beautiful woman with the braid. She's been reading tarot and doing all sort of fun witchy shit for about 20 years. 
Over the years, she's given me something like 20 tarot decks, most of which I'm still getting to know. The first deck, the one in the story, was the Deviant Moon Tarot, um, and Joanne did send me home with that deck after my first reading. I tried but failed to connect with that deck and have since gifted it to somebody else. That brings me to one of the biggest questions in the tarot community. Do you have to be gifted your first deck? The short answer is no. And the long answer explains why. <laughs> Technically, Joanne has gifted me, well, she gifted me at the beginning, like 10 decks. And I kept half of them. They were in a box for about three years before I finally got the pull to check them out. I didn't really connect with any of them. I found it really difficult to read with the only one that I actually liked, which was Tarot of the Spirit World. But it was Patrick's deck. I It had bonded with him, even though he doesn't really read for himself. But it was his deck. So when I was trying to read with it, I was having a really difficult time. Plus, I was brand spanking new to tarot, like never been driven off the lot, even for a test run. <laughs> and now I was trying to do full-on spreads. I wasn't really talking to Joanne too much about my tarot journey. It just wasn't something that I thought about. Didn't really think that I needed help. I would just look a lot of stuff up online. I knew something was wrong, though, because I just I just wasn't getting it. But I kept feeling the pull, like the need that this was something I should be doing. And none of the decks were working for me. Some outright creeped me out. And because everything is on purpose in the tarot, and you should always, always go with your intuition, I wasn't about to force it. I announced to Patrick that I needed to buy my own deck, and I wanted to buy it in St. Augustine sidebar about St. Augustine. It's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the United States. It's uh, right outside of Jacksonville, Florida, where I grew up, and it's only about three hours away from Tampa. And it's magical as hell for so many reasons. It's got a lot of history, a lot of old buildings, a whole street dedicated just to pedestrians and shops, delicious food, and it's haunted as fuck. Everywhere you go, ghosts and more ghosts. It's amazing. I grew up going on day trips with my friends to St. Augustine, buying ice cream, walking around Giant Fort. Patrick and I actually got married in St. Augustine in an outdoor museum that is since unfortunately closed. But it was amazing to get married in one of our favorite places. And we go a lot. We went three times in one year, one time. It's one of my favorite places. And I'll have to do an episode dedicated to this wonderful town, just on its own. But I knew I wanted to get my first tarot deck here because I had a tarot reading done at this insane museum called Wolf's. And I don't use the phrase insane lightly. It was incredible. I honestly should do an, an episode dedicated to this museum also. But in preparation for this episode, I learned that it was destroyed in a mysterious fire. I just learned about it, so R.I.P. Wolf's. I don't remember too much about the reading that I had done at Wolf's, but I do remember I was wondering if the next thing in my life was to have kids because my other hobbies weren't really panning out and I found myself with a lot of free time after my day job was over. 
And so Patrick just asked her point blank if we should have a baby. And she looks me square in the face and said, oh no, you have something far more important to do than have kids right now. And it was so interesting, but mostly a huge relief. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that having kids isn't important and incredibly gratifying and that you shouldn't have them. And who knows, maybe I will have some someday, but they do take up a lot of time and energy. And so does fulfilling your destiny, which that's the gravity that this tarot reading had for me. I really needed to know what I needed to do next. So getting pregnant was out the window and I dedicated the next six months to learning more about tarot and trying to get to know the Joanne decks. Deviant Moon was the other one that I kept going back to but uh, it just it just wasn't clicking. And I knew I needed to get my own deck. One that didn't have any other spiritual residue on it. A clean slate and something unique to me. Something that I felt a pull to. Six months after the reading, it was my birthday and we were going back to St. Augustine for a trip. And I spent the entire long weekend scouring various magical shops, poking at crystals, tapestries, and like one or two decks that, that it just didn't feel right. They were intriguing, but I knew they weren't the right ones. And so at the end of the weekend, we're driving out of the historical district and decided to stop at the Barnes & Noble of all places to see if they, they had anything. Maybe even just a reference book that I could pick up. Y'all, I had no idea that Barnes & Noble got the hookup on tarot decks. There were dozens. I was really excited. It was great because I would have been devastated to leave without the tarot deck. This was my birthday present to myself and I thought it was really important. So, sitting on the floor of B&N, Patrick, darling man that he is, and I pulled most of them off the shelf and began sorting them into piles of no, maybe, and yes, please. They were all shrink drops, so I couldn't really look at the cards, not that I knew what cards spoke to me. I was super new to tarot, so I didn't know if, like, I wanted to see what the death card looked like, or the high priestess, or the eight of pentacles, or anything like that. Side note, those three are probably my top ones that I look for when I'm considering a new deck, if I can check out the art. So finally, I settled on Stephanie Puymoonlaw's Shadowscapes Tarot. And I unwrapped it in the car as we drove back home. I read the guidebook, the few introductory pages, just in terms of how to read tarot, how to read that particular deck, and just kind of some overview information about the suits, specific numbers, things like that, the artist's intention, which I think is really important. And I still keep up that practice if there's a guidebook with a new deck, because I think there's some good information to kind of get to note of the deck. So I pulled my first card and it was the Ten of Cups and it really solidified for me that I had made the right choice and that I was kind of really finally moving forward. So let me explain something about the Ten of Cups. I didn't know this at the time, but it was interesting to look back on that moment. So the traditional Ten of Cups in the Rider-Waite-Smith deck is a happy family of four outside looking at a rainbow. And this is especially ironic because I had been thinking about having kids before I really got into the tarot. Well, this Ten of Cups in the Shadowscapes deck 
pictures a blue and golden couple swirling around underwater in this beautiful, loving embrace. And there's all these golden fish swimming around and it looks prosperous and sweet. And it reminded me as I was reading the description in the guidebook about my relationship with Patrick and how supportive he was and looking back how he always has been of my intuitive gift and eventually my identity as a witch. The harmony and love between us has allowed us to feel fulfilled emotionally, which is what the Ten of Cups is all about, feeling fulfilled emotionally. But there's this caveat also of just the love between two people and the support that we can give each other to move forward with our dreams. That's one thing that I'm really happy about him being on this podcast with me as well, because it's really exciting and kind of a nerve-wracking journey for me, but having him on it and having his support is incredible. So back to the deck itself, now that I've gotten all emotional, I completely clicked with that deck from that first card, and I now affectionately call it Shadow. She's my tried and true, and the one I usually use to read for people who've never had a reading before. When I go to markets, uh, when there are markets, not right now due to COVID, but um, usually brought Shadow with me, and her artwork is so inviting and beautiful, and it really puts people at ease, because a lot of people are nervous to get their tarot cards read. It's kind of a nerve-wracking process. Um, and I think that's one of the things that made it work so well with me also is even some of the cards that have kind of a bad rap, like the tower and death and, uh, three of swords, actually three of swords is pretty violent looking even in this deck, but it, the art kind of brings a certain beauty and comfort and it's so colorful and it's just absolutely gorgeous. And at this point, it feels like an old friend. I've had Shadow for almost three years now, which is crazy. But she's covered in lipstick and henna and has a little minor tearing and water damage and bending. But she's amazing. And that deck is how I first bonded with Karen of Grail Seekers Quest, who eventually became my podcast partner on Fabulous Fools. And this podcast was Karen's idea. <laughs> so really, all of this has snowballed into a beautiful reality with the purchase of Shadow. So yeah, my first deck was technically gifted to me, but I wouldn't say that I became a tarot reader with that deck or even because of that deck. My intuition shot through the roof after I began with Shadow. I was reading for other people within six months. As I mentioned, I'd been stuck for a long time. So it was really great to just pick something up that made sense and encouraged me to continue working. And even though it wasn't exactly easy for a while to pick up meanings and, you know, there's still times where I reach for the guidebook because it's still got a lot of really good information and can really strengthen and deepen a reading. But Shadow really opened things up for me. And I guess... That's the point of all this, is that there's no right or wrong answer to that question, do you have to be gifted your first tarot deck? But there's no right or wrong answer to any question when you're talking about tarot. If you don't like the deck someone gifted you, that's totally cool. 
if you're waiting on someone to gift you a deck to start your practice, that's totally cool. But if you come across a deck one day that you can't stop thinking about, buy it. Go for it. Invest in yourself. Gift it to yourself. You think that's a great way to just spark your own intuition. Just kind of get started anywhere. But it's really important, I think, that you connect with a deck. And on that note, I will also mention that the Ultimate Guide to Tarot by Liz Dean is also a really excellent reference book that Patrick gifted me for my birthday. <laughs> but it has pictures from the Rider-Waite-Smith deck. So the traditional tarot artwork that a lot of artists base their artistic interpretations is based off of that Rider-Waite-Smith deck. Pamela Coleman-Smith, affectionately known as Pixie, and who I will further after this talk, talk about as Pixie, she created that artwork. And I never actually bought a Rider-Waite-Smith deck, and I don't think I ever will, because that guidebook has got all the original pictures in there. So if I ever am wondering how that artwork compares to the card that I'm looking at, I just pull out the Ultimate Guide to Tarot. And again, it's by Liz Dean. I think it's less than $20 on Amazon. It's a fantastic reference book. And so without further ado, I'm going to give us a little collective reading from Shadow. I don't really know what our topic is going to be here. I can't really think of any sort of like origin spread, but I'm just going to pull some general cards. I don't really want to date the podcast because you could be listening to this months from when it's published. So I'm just going to do kind of a general reading. But I will say that at the time of recording, Virgo season has just started, which is a time of getting organized, really getting your shit together. I would know. I am a Virgo. <laughs> All right, let's pull some cards from Shadow and see her in action. Ooh. Cool. Wow. So we have the Knight of Pentacles, Queen of Swords, and King of Swords. So the Knight of Pentacles is the slowest moving knight. I like to think of it as lava because you have earth element means fire element. Lava moves really, really slowly and takes a really long time to form any sort of landmass. And I feel like that's what we're dealing with the Knight of Pentacles. However, even though progress is slow, it's still progress. We're still moving forward, still going towards the goal. And that, that's really all there is. The picture I'll describe of the Knight of Pentacles in the Shadowscapes Tarot, the knight and the dragon that he's riding look really, really weary. So I think there's some of that. There's a lot of frustration if progress has been really slow, but just keep in mind that progress is still progress. I feel like I was just experiencing that sort of thing trying to get this podcast published because I promised over a month ago that I would have it up and it took a lot longer for me to kind of get my shit together. Hey, it's still getting published. <laughs> so that's a victory. That's a good example of kind of the Knight of Pentacles energy. Then you have the Queen of Swords, who is one of my all-time favorite cards because she really cuts through the bullshit. She's where... The heart and the head meet up. The intuitive female energy meets kind of the logical aspect of the air element. And she's standing on this bed of purple flowers. So there's a lot of intuition. Purple's a great color for intuition. And she's got this sickle in front of her, kind of like she's holding up a mirror. 
And the guidebook kind of talks about holding up a mirror of truth to yourself. You know, what is it that you're really seeing? What is it that's truly there? And it's a moment of being really honest with yourself and going back to connect it to the Knight of Pentacles. So why is progress so slow? What's the real reason? Is it important to dig into that? Is it important to kind of search your head and your heart to unblock some of that energy? Maybe pick up the pace a little bit? But it's hard. It's hard to kind of dig into that and be honest with yourself. I'm not saying that it's easy, that phrase, easier said than done. But it's so important that that's here. There's also a lot of white space behind the Queen of Swords, and she's dressed in white, so that is purity, which goes back to that being honest, being truthful, being pure. And then there are these beautiful golden moths, and there's some golden little light bulb things around her. And that makes me think of the prosperity and the light kind of in the darkness, shining some light on that, shining some warmth on kind of a shitty situation it's not like I said it's not easy when you have to be honest with yourself sometimes it can be emotionally really painful but there's light on the horizon and it'll get better then you have the king of swords which is air meets air oh boy <laughs> I like this king of swords a lot he's got two ravens like um, Odin does Hugin and Munin and then he also has an owl perched atop his sword and he's leaned over like the thinker you also have da vinci's vitruvian man in the bottom right corner so there's a lot going on here there's a lot of swirling purple energy behind his back he's got these big angel wings yeah he's just kind of deep in thought so after you kind of uncover this truth about yourself about why your progress has been so slow and why you're not really getting things done it's really time to meditate on that. It's really just the first part is uncovering the, the reason. Then you have to kind of figure out how you overcome that or you use that to your advantage. The King of Swords is air and air. So it's a lot of logic. It's a lot of just being like, what is the most logical next step? What is the practical aspect of it? And swords are also, the air elemental is also about communication. There's something to that. I don't really know. I just felt like I needed to mention that. So if that's resonating with you, definitely take that. But as we always say in the tarot community, take what resonates and leave the rest. So that's our mini reading. I can't believe it was all court cards. Very interesting. So that's the first episode. <laughs> I want to make a few announcements before I sign off here for you guys. So I am a professional tarot reader as well, and everything will be uh, pictures from today's episode. The cards and things like that are going to be on my Instagram, Mystical Millennial, and I do professional tarot reading, so always DM me if you're interested in a reading. However, I wanted to mention a couple of deals that are going on. So if you've been paying attention to my Instagram at all, you guys know that Every day for Terror of the Day, I mention that we need to arrest the cops that murdered Breonna Taylor. A friend of mine introduced me to this account called Phenomenal, and they are printing this t-shirt that says arrest the cops that murdered Breonna Taylor, and a beautiful artist rendering of her portrait is on the back of the t-shirt. 
Those t-shirts are $51 shipped by Phenomenal, and if you show me proof of receipt, I will give you a free three-card tarot reading. The t-shirts are really cool. Hopefully, we won't have to wear them for very long, but uh, the proceeds Phenomenal is donating to the Brianna Taylor Foundation as well. There's more information on Phenomenal's website. The other deal that I've been doing for quite a while and I'll be doing until Brunchies gets fully funded, but I am trying to help facilitate the creation of Florida's first Black-owned brewery, Bunchies Homebrew. So Bunchies has a GoFundMe. Uh, they are trying to get donations to help open a brick-and-mortar location. And I am offering free tarot readings to equal the amount of your donation. And my normal tarot readings are emailed $5 a card. So if you make a $50 donation, you get 10 cards. You know, if you can only donate 10 bucks, then I give you a two-card reading. Things like that. So that's kind of the breakdown of the pricing. But I will match your donation with a free tarot reading. And I'm going to do that until Bunchies gets fully funded. And if you've already donated once, but you want to donate again, that's totally cool. And that's kind of everything going on right now. Thank you so much for listening. I am absolutely thrilled to publish my first episode. It's fantastic. And finally, I want to thank all of you. So many of you have encouraged me, believed in me, or have been anticipating this episode for a while. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening to Mystical Millennial. Podcast art is by Asgard Merman. Music by Russell Beard. Mixologist and editor, Patrick Kuczynski. And I'm your hostess, tarot reader, glamour witch, mystical millennial, V. Kusinskis. Find pictures of today's episode and book a reading on Instagram at mysticalmillennial.